writer Ernest Hemingway spent many years in Cuba and was living there when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. He told the Cuban television reporter at the time that he was proud to be the first Cubano Sato to be a Nobel laureate. Welcome to Copyright Clarence's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Hemingway, of course, knew some Spanish from his days covering the Civil War there in the 1930s, but the expression Cubano Sato is unique to the Caribbean island dialect. It roughly means half Cuban or honorary Cuban. In a moment, we will learn from Publishers Weekly News editor Calvin Reed whether he is similarly enamored of the island nation after a visit there this week for the Havana Book Fair. First, though, we turn to Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, for an update on the Apple eBook price fixing case. Andrew, welcome back to Beyond the Book. Hey there, Chris. So this is something you obviously have been following for some time, and we are inching our way, we think, to the Supreme Court. Certainly Apple is appealing to the justices there, but they've had other news on their minds this week. Yeah, that's right. So we were set today to actually uh, have the conference that would decide the fate of Apple's appeal in its ebook price fixing case. And then, of course, we had the sudden death of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia last weekend. And long story short, the appeal hearing, uh, the conference set for today has been postponed. And we're not sure exactly when the appeal will be taken up again, though I imagine it will be picked up at the next conference. But in a final bit of housekeeping, before the Supreme Court decides the fate of Apple's appeal, the Second Circuit weighed in this week on a challenge to the 2014 Apple settlement with 33 states in the consumer class. And in a a really short eight-page ruling, the appeals court dispatched with a single objector's attempt to sort of sink the settlement, uh, saying the challenge was essentially devoid of merit. In the court papers, the single objector to the settlement, John Bradley, was described as a serial objector who had no real stake in the settlement, but was uh, more or less looking to be paid off. So anyway, we're still going to have to wait a little longer to find out if Apple's appeal will be taken. Uh, and I'll just remind you that uh, if Apple's appeal is declined, then Judge Denise Coates' 2013 liability finding against Apple is going to be considered final. And that will trigger $400 million in consumer rebates that were part of the settlement that the Second Circuit affirmed this week. If the case is remanded for further proceedings, Apple will pay $50 million to consumers. And if reversed, Apple is going to pay nothing. So $400 million in Apple rebates are at stake here. Well, you know, $400 million certainly would be a shot in the arm, to say the least, to a flagging ebook market. And so I guess we have to ask you for some kind of prognostication here. Do you think that uh, uh, we're going to wind up seeing that in our ebook accounts? Well, there's two ways to answer that. I'm going to stick with my experts and the people I've been talking to all along. And most of them say that they don't think the court is going to take up Apple's appeal. Uh, and as to why, I would actually recommend a really excellent symposium that I took part in this week at the Truth on the Blog Market. And you can read all about that on the PW site. And actually, there's a link to the symposium in my articles there. And that's a, where a number of legal experts weighed in as to why or why not the Supreme Court would actually take up the case. Uh, for me, the bottom line is that this really is a fact case, and I just don't think the facts line up for Apple here. So I'm going to stick with my experts' predictions and say I doubt the Supreme Court is, is going to take it up. But as to the $400 in rebates, interesting 
point here is that with the publisher settlements, the 166 million that was paid out before, that money was all mandated to be spent on books. But that doesn't exist with Apple's settlement. So that $400 million that's going into consumer accounts, that can be spent on anything. So if you're an Apple customer and you get that rebate, you can buy iTunes stuff, you can buy a new phone, whatever on your Apple account. And if it's Amazon, you can buy flashlights or underwear, not necessarily books. So whether or not that money actually falls to the bottom line of publishers is not exactly a slam dunk here. Oh, fascinating wrinkle. I need some flashlights and some underwear, so (laughs) I might want to go there rather than some books. Andrew Albanese, as always, thanks for joining us. And we'll turn now to your colleague, Calvin Reed, who's just returned from Havana, Cuba. Hola, Calvin. How are you? Hola, buenos dias, senor. Uh, That's the full extent of my Spanish. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, well, it's great to be on this program, and it's great to be able to talk about visiting Cuba. Well, really, what a terrific opportunity you've just had. This this comes just ahead, and now you've beaten him there, uh, Calvin Reed, but it comes just ahead of President Barack Obama's visit to Cuba, which I think is about the first time in a century uh, a sitting president will have been to the island. You were there for the 25th anniversary Havana Book Fair. Very exciting time, I'm sure, in so many ways. Take it apart for us. What was it like to be there at the book fair? Well, absolutely extraordinary. But let me just preface this because I just want people to understand that this was a historic event that I was lucky and fortunate to be a part of. Basically, Publishers Weekly and Combined Book Exhibit, um, a wonderful company run by John Malinowski, in partnership with us and Kevin Breyerman, our executive uh, vice president and publisher, on a wing and a prayer after they got an email aimed at them around last BAA that said, I think the words were Cuba Havana Book Fair. Kevin and John basically have put together the first official visit by American publishers to Cuba in the entire 25-year history of the Havana Book Fair. So that's what we were part of, a historic first-time event. And we hope because at the same time, Kevin and John signed an equally historic memorandum of understanding with the Cuban Book Institute. Now, the Cuban Book Institute essentially oversees the Cuban publishing industry and generates the data and statistics about it, as well as managing it. You know, obviously, it's a state-run uh, industry. They signed a a memorandum of understanding with the Cuban Book Institute to continue to collaborate to bring American publishers uh, on a cultural mission. And I should be clear about that because Americans are still it is still illegal for Americans to have business dealings with Cuba. But you are able to travel there on a cultural mission. And thanks to President Obama and uh, his recent announcement that has opened this up even further, there are more Americans than ever before going to Cuba. But we are working with the Cuban Book Institute to continue to come in the future to the Havana Book Fair and also to bring members of the Cuban Book Institute and Cuban publishers and authors in the future, hopefully at the most at the upcoming uh, Book Expo America in Chicago to bring them here to the States and looking even further down the road when the trade embargo is dealt with for American publishers to be able to publish Cuban authors in the States and vice versa for American writers to be published in Cuba. Well, it's, it, it really sounds very exciting and an interesting uh moment of transition in so many ways for American-Cuban relations. There's the the diplomatic piece, there's the trade embargo that you've mentioned, and there's 
the isolation that Cuba has experienced for so long, at least uh, uh, isolation from the U.S., which I'm sure has kept them uh, behind uh, as far as the progress of digitization and, and uh, the Internet. Tell us what your sense was of, of how far Cuban publishing and the Cuban people have to go before they, they're even in the digital world. Well, actually, um, I'll mention a, a couple of individuals at the Cuban Book Institute because actually one of the, the statistics that was presented was that 70% of the Cuban population have had contact with digital reading of some kind. What is holding back the growth of digitization, of course, is the lack of digital reading devices and, of course, Internet access in general. Wi-Fi is available, certainly to tourists, as well as to the Cuban people to some extent. Cuban teenagers were all looking at Facebooks on their phones from what I could see down there. That That's no different from here. But whatever, there is much more limited aspects. There are hotspots located in various places that I think citizens can use. For tourists or visitors such as us, you can buy a Wi-Fi card and Wi-Fi is available at the hotels and at certain public places, not at the book fair, however. I, I should say this. There was some limited Wi-Fi available around the offices uh, of the Book Institute, which who organized the book fair. But once we were away from our hotel, there was no Wi-Fi. I will say this. The Cuban people that I talk with, the teenagers, and we also had 10 wonderful interns from the University of Havana, uh, the bilingual teenagers who worked with us to do some translating. And I should also add one of the things that Publishers Weekly and Combined Book Exhibit did was we organized panels both at the Havana Book Fair, which I should say was held at an amazing facility, a 16th century fortress that uh, dates to the beginnings of Cuba that has been turned into a museum. It's a vast, sprawling medieval-looking fortress that overlooks the city. And the, the exhibits were held there in the fortress, in the behind the garrison walls. It was really an amazing thing. And tens of thousands of people stream through that fortress every day. Well, uh, Calvin, I've seen your pictures on Facebook, speaking of Facebook, and I've seen those crowds. I've seen those classic automobiles. There's something of Cuba as a, uh, considered to be a kind of a Cold War theme park, but it's a, it's a vibrant 21st century nation, a young population that must be very thirsty for the opportunity to have communication with America and all that our culture has to offer, but it goes the other way as well. Did you get a sense of Cuban publishing, Cuban literature, Cuban authors? What's the state of the art there today in Cuba? Well, the publishing uh, enterprises in Cuba are, as, as I understand it, they're all state-run, and they are all, in, as I understand it, publishers are sort of slotted into certain sectors so that they don't they sort of don't compete with each other while we were down there though there you know there are publishers that focus on children's books that focus on literature all of the children's books publishers were completely overwhelmed as was explained to us uh, and I should say, uh, some of the people we met with there at the Cuban Book Institute, a, a really a fabulous woman that is the president of the uh, Cuban Book Institute, Zuleika Romeguera, who's a writer herself. We also met with Alberto Edel Morales Fuentes, who is the VP of um, International Relations for the Book Institute. And we also met with Yamila Cohen Valdez, who heads the Latin American Literary Agency. And this is a state-run literary agency that negotiates rights for all Cuban authors. So... 
we met a wide variety of publishers. There were many that were, uh, there were about 40 to 50 publishers that were registered as part of our professional panels, which were held off-site at the um, uh, Memories Miramar Hotel. I moderated a day of panels on Tuesday of this week with American publishers educating the, the Cuban publishing community about how American publishing is done. And on Monday, our um, Spanish correspondent, Leila Ejuil, she, uh, in Spanish, ma- um, managed a variety of panels dealing with publishers. The University of Havana has a very extensive academic publishing plan. We met a number of other publishers. Um, I, I apologize whose names I don't have right in front of me. So, but it was very interesting. What we got from them was a, a very candid sense that Cuban publishing was in crisis. And these are the words used by um, Zuleika Aguera uh, in a very uh, bracing and very candid assessment. In her own words, the Cuban people are out in front of the Cuban publishing uh, industry. As I understand it, the Cuban publishers are set up like this. Since they don't pay royalties, what they do, the government pays royalties and the government pays printing. And monies that are brought in by the publishers are used for marketing and promotion and plowed back into the organization. So that's how the state-run publishing sector is handled. But they recognize the problems that they have. Prices have to be controlled. As modern uh, in mindset as the Cuban people are, they're very poor. Books, for the most part, sell for less than a dollar. Uh, and even at the book fair, most of the prices I saw were uh, two to three or four kooks. So there are a number of issues around uh, how they publish, in particular, the trade embargo, which makes it very expensive for them to get materials because they have to find some way to buy through people who don't use U.S. banks. And the ability to even negotiate very often rights deals for Cuban authors with non-U.S. publishers who also use U.S. banks. So the Cuban publishing industry itself recognizes that they are in a crisis to supply information to a modern, growing, thriving population. Well, Calvary, we'll have to leave it there. So much to learn from you. Look forward to chatting with you about it more. We can, of course, read all of your reports in Publishers Weekly uh, as you have been filing uh, throughout this week from the Havana Book Fair. And appreciate your joining us today on Beyond the Book. It's great to be here. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global rights licensing technology and content workflow organization. At CCC, we serve more than 35,000 customers and 15,000 copyright holders worldwide. We manage more than 950 million rights from some of the world's most sought-after journals, books, blogs, movies, and more. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.